0: Good evening and welcome. I'm Ben Mercer from the School of History at the Australian National University. I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's public lecture on the events of 1968. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. This event is organized in cooperation between the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University and the National Library of Australia. I'd like to thank Professor Catherine Waldby at the ANU, Catherine Martin, and Guy Hansen at the NLA. 1968 has long captured the historical imagination. A year of global revolt, of mass protest, of the specter of revolution a general strike in France, the war in Vietnam, assassinations in the United States, Prague Spring, and winter in the communist bloc. Historians have often found it difficult to explain a revolt that crossed continents, that occurred simultaneously in sites so far apart, that appeared so spectacular in the short term, but the long term legacies of which are sometimes difficult to discern. Few historians are better prepared to grapple with this topic than Professor Robert Gildea. Professor of Modern History at the University of Oxford, fellow of the British Academy, he is a specialist in 19th and 20th century French and European history. Among his numerous books are Marianne in Chains, In Search of the German Occupation, Children of the Revolution, the French 1799 to 1914, Fighters in the Shadows, A New History of the French Resistance, and he coordinated a five-year international project involving 15 historians working on activists from Spain to the Soviet Union for the project of Europe's 68 Voices of Revolt. And some of these books will be available in the bookstore after the talk for Robert to sign. His latest book is a work on the entangled histories of British and French imperialisms. These are scholarly works of unrivalled breadth and depth and reveal the personal stories amid the great historical events of the modern era and challenge the myths of past and present. The title of his lecture tonight is 1968, Then and Now. Please join me in welcoming Professor Robert Gildea.
1: Thank you, Ben, for that very warm introduction and thank thank you to all of you for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here, my second visit to Australia. um, And I'm particularly pleased uh, I think that my cousin's in the audience, my cousin who left uh, Britain in 1958, um, and it's very nice to to meet up with him. Okay, so um, 1968 then and now. I'm gonna talk about uh, 1968 as, as having three characteristics. First of all, it was a political and a personal revolt. These were people, the people who made 1968, were people who wanted to change the world but also to change themselves. It was a generation revolt, and when we talk about generations, it's not just people of, uh, of, of age X, but these are, a generation is created, is forged by conflicts of a particular time. And 68 was part of, uh, it was a global revolt, as, as Ben said, a, tr- a global and transnational revolt, but it wasn't just one thing. They were, they were divided, people were divided by these different conflicts. So I'm going to talk first about the lead-up to 1968 and how the 1968s were, were shaped. I'm going to then talk about the global 1968, then about post-1968. Then I'm going to talk about the eclipse of political protest in the 1980s and 90s. And then I'm going to talk about the return of protest, sort of 1968-style uh, uh, after, after 2000. So one can, one can imagine that the... the the 1968ers were shaped politically and shaped uh, culturally by various uh, events. They were shaped politically by two wars and one revolution. They were shaped by the Second World War and the Cold War, and they were shaped by the Third World Revolutions against colonialism and imperialism that raged in the 1950s and 1960s. Those who made 1968 were born during just before or just after the Second World War. Their parents had been in the thick of the war, either as villains who had collaborated with fascism or Nazism, or they'd been heroes who had resisted the same fascism or Nazism, or they were Jews who had been persecuted and forced to hide, or they were parents who had been vanquished by, by uh, in anti-fascist struggles, the people who had who had lost the struggle in Spain as a, as a result of the Spanish Civil War or in Greece as a result of the Civil War there. But these 1968 were also uh, defined by the Cold War that divide Euro- divided Europe into two. It divided Europe into the communist world and the so-called free world, but these two worlds had something in common. They each, The governments of those, country, of, the, of those spheres each exploited the threat of the other, to build up military, industrial, and security complexes to develop the atomic bomb and to clamp down on non-conformity and dissent. Now, this was opposed uh, by a number of movements. The first one that you see here was the Ban the Bomb movement, uh, which you saw in both Western and Eastern Europe, and they were aimed both against Washington and Moscow. Here on the left, we see (coughs) the CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and the Aldermaston Marches from 1958. And on the right, uh, the struggle against atomic death in West Germany. <clears throat> there was also the student movement in Japan against US military bases and threats of nuclear war there. And when you look at these, these are not really students. They're, you know, very, some of these are mature people, grown up people, some of them with babies in pushchairs. So this is 1958, you see. The, the 1968 movement hasn't really taken off. There was an opposition among young people, though, uh, who, were, who, who were increasingly joining Marxist movements. And these Marxist movements were opposed both to capitalism and indeed to Stalinism. They wanted to combine the socialism and freedom, whether it, whether it was the so-called socialist humanism of the new left in the West, or socialism with a human face in Eastern Europe. And there were similarities between this statement here, this is the, this is the famous Port Huron statement of Students for a Democratic Society, Uh, in 1962, and you can see uh, what they're opposed to. But if you compare them, if you compare this to the famous open letter of a couple of young uh, uh, students and activists to the Polish Workers' Party, which was the Polish Communist Party in 1964, uh, you find that they are uh, campaigning, they are different, but they are kind of campaigning against uh, the same things. uh, They're campaigning against party bureaucracy, lack of freedoms, Uh, and so on. Very important also at this time was the civil rights movement. So there were young black and white uh, activists who founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee, uh, which in 1961 organised Freedom Rides to test the official desegregation of interstate interstate buses in the south of the United States. Uh, A lot of them were beaten up and some were killed, if if any of you have seen the wonderful film Mississippi Burning. In the autumn of 1964, the Freedom Ride students returned to their home universities <coughs> at Berkeley, which you, say, which you see on the right. They campaigned to publish their work and to collect, collect donations. This was banned by the university authorities and the administrative building was occupied in December 1964 and triggered a strike uh, by 10,000 students. This forced the university to concede the principle of free speech and to provide a model for other campus struggles both in the United States and elsewhere. Meanwhile, marches in Alabama from Selma Selma to Montgomery in March 1965 to claim the right to vote were brutally beaten up by police and troopers and I'll come back to that because this this starts to be the origin of black power. But the third thing that shapes politically the the 68ers is revolution in the third world against colonialism and imperialism. Now, the gospel of these people was uh, a book called The Wretched of the Earth by Frantz Fanon, who you see uh, top left. He uh, was a doctor and writer of French Caribbean origin. Uh, he had been a doctor in a psychiatric hospital in Algiers, uh, and he was uh, opposed to the French use of torture against the rebels in the Algerian war, which lasted from 1954 to 62. And he argued in his book that the violence of the colonialists (coughs) had to be confronted by the violence violence of the colonized. This, he said, would cleanse them of their sense of powerlessness and bind them in their struggle for liberation. And I'm just going to go very quickly through a number of uh, liberation struggles that you see at this time. (coughs) So first of all, you have uh, the the Cuban Revolution, uh, organized by um, Fidel Castro against the American-backed Batista regime in 1959, he immediately became a figure on the world stage, as did his uh, comrade in arms, uh, the Argentinian Ernesto Che Guevara. There was a struggle against, as as I've mentioned, a struggle against French military repression and torture in Algeria, which was seeking its independence. Young people in France refused the draft to go and fight the Algerian rebels and acted as so-called bag-carriers for the Algerian nationalist activists, that meant they <coughs> they carried messengers, they they provided safe houses. Uh, the French police acted very severely both against Algerian nationalists demonstrating in Paris. There was a there was a massacre of these people on the 17th of October 1961, and uh, uh, French activists uh, were French student activists were were also massacred. Uh, well, they were a number of them were killed in 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 a. In a, in, a, in a scene in, in February 1962. In 1962, Algeria <coughs> finally gained its independence from France and became a center of transnational revolution. Che Guevara visited Algiers in July 1963 and was interviewed by France Fanon's widow, Josie. There was an international youth club, that, youth camp that was set up at Sidi Furouch on the, on the Algerian coast, and this became a sort of North African 1968 avola la lettre, One activist later recalled that all the young people who made 1968, whether in France, Italy, or Germany, passed through that uh, camp. Meanwhile, in uh, in, uh, West Africa and Central Africa, Patrice Lumumba came to power in the Congo when the Belgians suddenly granted independence, and he was proclaimed by Jean-Paul Sartre as a black Robespierre, the French Revolutionary. Lumumba was overthrown and murdered in January 1961 by African rivals, who were uh, were supported by a coalition of Belgian forces, Western governments, and the CIA. And this produced demonstrations in cities from Montreal to Lahore. At the end of 1964, Che Guevara addressed the United Nations and berated it for betraying Lumumba. He said the free men of the world must be prepared to avenge the crime committed in the Congo. And he himself, the next year, formed a band of freedom fighters uh, to go and fight in the Congo. And this brings us to black power. Uh, The entrenched social and racial inequalities in the United States were dramatised by riots in the black ghettos of the northern cities, which to some people seemed like inner colonies during the three hot summers of 1965, 66 and 67. The the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee became divided between activists who opposed violence and those who were prepared to embrace it. And in June 1966, Stokely Carmichael, who you see there, announced, we want black power, and the Black Panther Party was formed later that year. Lastly, we've got the Chinese Cultural Revolution of 1966. Now China became a focus of attention in 1960 when it broke diplomatically with its former mentor, the Soviet Union. And in 1966, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution. This offered an alternative of revolution that challenged Soviet bureaucracy, and it also challenged what would look like Soviet detente with the United States, Mao famously scorned what he called the paper tiger of Western imperialism. The mobilization of young people in the Red Guards as the vanguard of revolution against the party bureaucracy in 1966 to 1969 may be seen as a sort of Chinese 1968, and it certainly had a galvanizing effect on on young activists in Europe. In France, enthusiasm for the cultural revolution provoked a breakaway of young communists in 1966, and some of these young people who called themselves Maoists, went on a pilgrimage to China in 1967. One of them, Jean-Pierre Le re- Dantec, recalled uh, that there was, quote, a spiritual time bomb in Mao Tse saying that a revolution is not a dinner party. He said, we liked Mao's idea that there had to be trouble. It was, however, the Vietnam War <clears throat> and massive American bombing on the north after after, February 1968 that catalyzed and universalized the student and youth movements. Vietnam was seen as a battlefield on which the struggle between imperialism and anti-imperialism would be decided. Jay Guevara called in April 1962 for what he called two, three, many Vietnams before he himself went to fight in Bolivia. He was killed by government forces in October 1967 and as you know, became a global revolutionary icon. Here we have some of the uh, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the, um, the 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 protests against the Vietnam War. Here we have the, Biet- the Berlin Vietnam Congress in February 68. We've got movements. Uh, many, uh, we've got demonstrations in Berkeley, demonstrations in London, demonstrations in Tokyo, and here, of course, demonstrations in Canberra. Now, this was actually a bit later. Uh, in your exhibition, uh, there's a there's a wonderful um, uh, uh, representation of SOS, the Mothers, the Save Our Sons Mothers, who were active in '68. But this is a reference to the anti-Vietnam War moratorium movement, uh, which doesn't get going until 1970 to '71. But I think you have to. One of the things I'm saying in this lecture is, 1968 isn't just '68; it goes right into the 1970s. So, until now, I've been talking about how these young people, uh, especially students, were shaped by the events of their time. But they were, also, they were not just shaped by political events, they were also shaped by uh, cultural revolutions. Uh, in the first place, they were part of a much wider youth culture. Now, youth culture, you might um, uh, see, as situated somewhere between mass culture and cult culture. It was largely defined by enthusiasm for rock, for rock music, jeans and miniskirts and later the hippie long skirt and long hair. This in itself was a rebellion against conventional family values and social respectability, but it often gave rise to violence. So the Beatles visited Hamburg in 1968 and the US uh, in 1964. It's important to note that the Beatles were also a global phenomenon and they were copied uh, all over the place. So for example, in Mexico, there there was a group called Lost Duck Dogs who did cover versions of the Beatles and the Mexican youth were caught up in something called La La Onda, the wave. I'll come back to Mexico later. Here we have the Rolling Stones, whoops, the Rolling Stones doing a concert in Berlin, uh, which led to clashes with police, this is in 1965, and about the same time, uh, the East German youth were also clashing uh, with police in Leipzig. So the the general framework is the youth culture. Within there, there's there's a sort of subculture of hippies and dropouts, which we will call the hippie uh, subculture. This began on the western coast of the United States. And the aim was to build an alternative society in which which war, violence, racism, and poverty were replaced by peace and love. The high point uh, came with uh, the so-called Summer of Love in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco in 1967. And here we have the Monterey Pop Festival Uh, of 1967, which featured Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Janis Joplin, and Jefferson Airplane. And we also have the Hippie Trail here, the Hippie Trail uh, that goes uh, to Mexico, to Morocco, Afghanistan, Kathmandu in Nepal, ultimately to Goa uh, uh, in India, and and on to Bangkok. Now, so you've got political, c- political forces and cultural forces, but they're also, you can also talk about hybrids, which are both political and uh, cultural. In the, in the mid-1960s, <clears throat> a number of groups emerged to challenge the existing order by provocation through art, spectacle, or what was called at the time, happenings. And the idea was to shock society through collective transgressive gen- gestures that were symbolic, theatrical, and non-violent. So the first thing you will recognize here is OZ, which was founded uh, by Richard Neville in Sydney in 1963. It was subversive both culturally and politically. Uh, Obscenity trials uh, took place here, and then in London, they all went off to London in 1966, and the London edition started appearing in 1967. In Berlin, a group called Subversive Action threw stink bombs at the Congolese Prime Minister, Moise Chombe who had helped to overthrow our friend Lumumba, Uh, while its successor, a group called Commune 1, planned what they called a pudding assassination of U.S. Vice President Hubert Humphrey in April 1967. Uh, In Amsterdam, the so-called Provost made their mark in March 1966 when they threw stink bombs to disrupt the wedding of Princess Beatrice with a German diplomat who had fought in the Wehrmacht. Back in the United States, uh, former civil rights activist Abby Abby Hoffman and anti-war activist Jerry Rubin founded the Youth International Party, otherwise known as the Yippies, in December 1967. Their most famous stunt was to run a pig called Pigasus for the Democratic Party nomination in 1968. (laughs) You could say that it wasn't really a stunt because a pig could could probably do better than many a US president. So I'm now going to talk about the global 1968. 1968 saw, saw a chain of protests or revolutions from the United States to Japan and from Iceland to South Africa. And we've also already seen it's got as far as Australia. They used common tactics. These common tactics in, included street protests. Uh, the occupation of universities and factories. Here we have the occupation of the Sorbonne in Paris. Uh, you can see them putting up their posters and graffiti. Uh, and there were open meetings, of, um, open meetings which, which, which sort of dramatized that what they really wanted, which was participatory democracy or direct democracy. This is a bunch of French uh, feminists having a discussion. Now for many protesters, these, these movements were what they called bringing the revolution back home. The revolution was going to be brought back home from the Third World to the capital cities of the West, and indeed the East. There were many encounters between activists of East and West, between activists of North and South, but this, the, you know, it wasn't just one movement. There were a lot of misunderstandings and differences that were pointed up. So, for example, here's, here's, here's a, an example of bringing the revolution back home. This is a revolu- march in Paris, but you can see uh, you can see, you know, the, the, this is this is obviously our friend Che. This is Trotsky. This is uh, 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 indeed Rosa Luxemburg. So they, they're carrying their heroes above them. Um, but there were there were there were, there were some issues between East and West. So, for example, in 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 January sixty eight in Prague, Alexander Dubcek took over as first secretary of the Communist Party. He abolished censorship and a public debate ensued about whether communism could be uh, reconciled with market forces and and freedoms. The German student leader, uh, Red, Rudi Dutschka, who you saw in the first slide, visited Prague in April 1968. He couldn't understand why the the students there were abandoning communism for democracy and free speech. Poland, too, uh, had had a student revolution in March 1968, and one of the activists, this guy here, Uh, Blumstein, who was interviewed by one of my colleagues, as you can see, in 2010, said this about the differences between East and West. He said, we, we in Poland, were fighting for what they, in the West, uh, were rejecting. That was all quite obvious. For us, democracy was a dream, but for them, it was a prison. So I simply couldn't comprehend their Marxism, their communism, all that leftist ideology of theirs. Nevertheless, he said, I did feel a generational sympathy. That's how I'd label it. I felt there was a bond between us. So there was a certain amount of lack of sympathy and lack of understanding between East and West. And when the Soviet tanks uh, invaded Czechoslovakia in August 1968, there wasn't actually much, demonstrating, much, much protest demonstrating uh, in, in, in the West. There was also a, difference, a big difference between North and South. So, for example, uh, in the USA, protests centered on democratic process. In Chicago, the Students for a, demonstra- uh, for a Democratic Society, the Yippies and the Nonviolent Coordinating Committee led a challenge to the Democratic Party convention that was nominating Hubert Humphrey as presidential uh, candidate. A crowd of 10,000 gathered in Grant Park at the end of August, but when the US flag was lowered by the students, the police charged and used tear gas. The leaders, including Abby Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden of the SDS, and Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers, were arrested and put on trial for conspiracy. They were the so-called Uh, Chicago, eight. But if you thought they had it difficult, you have to look at what happened in Mexico City. The Granaderos, or riot police, attacked a student demonstration uh, at the end of July 1968. Strikes and occupations spread through the universities and high schools, mobilizing a quarter of a million students. The government was desperate to restore order before the opening of the Mexican Olympics, and on the 2nd of October 1968, the police and army were sent to break up a demonstration in the square of the three cultures, Klataloco Square, killing over 200 students. The repercussions were legion, and here you, fight, here you have a few days later, 16th of October, two black American athletes who had won gold and bronze in the Olympic men's 200 meters, raising the black glove of the, of, of the, black, uh, of the black Panthers on the podium. <clears throat> and the last distinction I want to make is between uh, colonizing and colonized societies. And you can see, for example, Northern Ireland as a colonized society. The the Catholics there uh, who who, who were kept down by the Protestants and by by British uh, power regarded themselves very much as colonized. And students from the Queen's University Belfast set up an organization called People's Democracy uh, in 1968. They very much copied the civil rights movement Uh, and and at the beginning of 1969, organised a march from Belfast to Derry, which was modelled on the Selma to Montgomery march. This was broken up uh, by what you might call the colonial forces of the police and Protestant loyalist thugs. In South Africa, which was much more obviously a colonial society, at the University of Cape Town, 300 students (coughs) of the National Union of South African Students occupied the administrative building on the 14th of August 1968, after the university had withdrawn a, drop, a job offer uh, made to a Cambridge-educated black South African anthropologist. But this uh, uh, student organization, NUSAS, represented white, mostly English-speaking students, black students who were confined under the apartheid regime to what were called tribal or Bush universities, such as Fort Hare and Turfloop, set up their own student, their own South African South Africa, African Students Union, SASO. which was led by medical student Steve Biko. There he is, and we'll come back to him later. So I'm now going to come to post-68. You know, the the stories tell you basically that the 68 movement was crushed in Paris in June 1980 and in Prague uh, by the Soviet tanks in August 1968. But it wasn't... things were not completely over. And there was a sort of... People went in two directions, if you like, after that. There were those who favoured what what we've seen as cultural revolution or or sometimes called lifestyle revolution. And there were those who favoured political revolution and sometimes would entertain the use of violence. By and large, in democratic democratic countries which had enjoyed what you might call a good, in inverted commas, Second World War, i.e. they were on the winning side, there was a greater tendency for cultural revolution. But in countries which had had a bad Second World War, which had endured fascism or Nazism, or which were currently enduring dictatorships, such as in Greece and Spain, there was a greater tendency for for political activism and violence. France is kind of somewhere in between the two. So if we look at cultural or lifestyle revolution, here uh, I think the story is that many former activists felt felt themselves burnt out, if you like, by 1968. They left the street street battles to experiment with communal living. They lived in squats or communes in the city or in the countryside." So here uh, is an English English, uh, commune. The idea was that rather than confront the state and capitalism uh, head on, they skirted round them. They took part in a sort of inner immigration to find free spaces in which they could build communities of equals. They pooled resources. Uh, they did away with authority, private property, and nuclear uh, families. And uh, the project—the project that I organised—showed that, I, um, organized showed, that uh, showed that these communes were uh, were current from a place. This is this is a place called Eel, Eel Pie Island in the in the Thames to a, a commune called the Yellow Submarine, which was actually in Leningrad. Uh, we have the feminist movement. Women were heavily involved in the movements that made '68. But they often came to realize that these movements were very male-dominated. Aggressive theoretical debates left women uh, voiceless, military-style tactics alienated them, and the sexual exploitation of women by male leaders in 1968 was standard. So feminist organizations uh, sprang up, and there was a global dimension to these. So there was a group called the Red Stockings that was set up in America in 1969 to challenge their American laws against abortion And they were copied by a Danish group that you see there um, of the same name. And there you have our friend Germaine Greer, who who published The Female Eunuch in 1971, which was an international uh, bestseller. Uh, We also have the emergence of the gay rights movement. Here we have the Stonewall riots of of June 1969 uh, in the United States. And there was a French a French gay rights group called the Homosexual Front for Revolutionary Action, uh, run by a very charismatic character called Guy Hoggengen. Also coming out of 1968, you have the ecology movement. This is Earth Day, 22nd of April 1972, so that also is another cultural uh, uh, consequence of 1968. But there were also political revolutions, political revolutions which deviated into extreme violence. And one way to explain this is is to say that whereas for most 1968ers, when they talked about things like bring the revolution home or two, three, many Vietnams or revolution within the revolution, they were thinking symbolically, rhetorically. But there were some violent groups who who took these literally. And as I said, in in, in countries which had endured fascism and and Nazism, such as West Germany or Italy, uh, or in countries which had lost Um, where the anti-fascist movements had lost in a civil war, such as in Franco-Spain or Greece under the colonels post-1967, the young people were more inclined to uh, go in for uh, violent uh, uh, movements. Former 68s, uh, they they set up organizations to continue the revolution post-68, their, their original idea was to try to mobilise workers who had gone on strike in 1968, but, or to remobilise them. But if they couldn't, which was the case, for example, in West Germany, they would directly attack uh, state and military institutions and the bosses of big corporations. So in Italy, you have Lotta Continua, the continuing struggle, and then the Red Brigades. Whoops. Uh, uh, in, in, in Germany, you have the Red Army Faction. And uh, one of them, uh, Gudrun Enslin, uh, came up with this famous phrase talking of the, the, their parents' generation. She said, this is the Auschwitz generation. There is no arguing with them. So they, 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 they were still caught up in the, in the, in the struggles of the, of the Second World War with their parents. <coughs> in Japan, you have the... Uh, this is the Japanese Red Army. And in France, you have an organization called the Proletarian Left, and then it would call itself the New French Resistance. And here is a particularly interesting one. It's called the... Uh, Iberian Liberation Movement, <clears throat> this was composed across, across the Spanish-French border by uh, the children of Spanish republicans who had become exiled in France after, the, uh, after their defeat in Spain, and former 68ers in the south of France, they set up this organisation uh, which declared a guerrilla war against Franco in 1971, and one of their number, uh, a young man called Puig Antich, was actually uh, garroted by the Franco regime in 1974. In countries that were, which were subject to colonial violence uh, or, in, or which were in solidarity with those countries, uh, they also saw uh, revolutionary and violent political movements. After the Six-Day War uh, in 1967, when Israel defeated the Arab states, Nasser's Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, uh, leadership, Arab leadership passed to the Palestinian resistance in exile. These became the spearhead of the Arab struggle. They were crushed by the Jordanian government in what was called Black September 1970, but they fought back. In France, for example, Palestinian committees uh, were formed in France, which linked student radicals with North African immigrant workers. Uh, And and in France, there was something called the Arab Workers Movement, which organized strikes in 1973. But by then, a schism had had appeared, because you you probably know this famous, rather horrific picture of of the Munich Olympics, Uh, when uh, the Palestinians uh, massacred uh, Israeli athletes. And this drove a wedge between uh, uh, student radicals or former student radicals in France, many of whom were of Jewish origin, and and the Arabs who were were prepared to uh, support the PLO. Uh, The Red Army Army faction in West Germany fought alongside the PLO, and the PLO uh, hijacked a plane in 1977 uh, in order to obtain the release of uh, Red Army Faction prisoners. Here we have Northern Ireland, where the brutality of the British Army against Catholic and nationalist demonstrators on bloody Sunday, uh, January, 30th of January 1972, led to the intensification of violence by the IRA. So you go from what looks like 1968 to, to the Troubles. And in South Africa, black, Steve, black students uh, organised by S- uh, Steve Biko's movement Uh, formed a black people's convention. This was designed to undertake youth and community work in black communities. It led the way to a strike by 100,000 South African workers in 1973, to the trial of nine of these activists in 1975 and 1976 under a terrorism act, and ultimately to this, the Soweto uprising of 1976. It also led to the arrest, torture, and death in 1977 of Steve Beaker. What I'm trying to say here is, it is possible to see movements like this uh, in South Africa and and someone like Steve Beaker as as being a a product of the 1968 movement in in its widest sense. Now, not everyone went down the road of violence or not everyone went down the road of uh, feminism or communes. And, And here are two interesting examples of what, I call, uh, what you might call non-violent political movements. There was a growing understanding that political violence could not achieve anything, uh, that political violence was delegitimized as terrorism. If, you didn't, if a government or the press uh, called a movement a terrorist, it wasn't going to succeed, and terrorism also uh, alienated public opinion. And here are two, but here are two examples of groups, not of students. Well, the, students are involved, uh, but this is a group of workers and peasants who promoted local, decentralized, symbolic and non-violent forms of resistance. So here on the left are activists in a watch factory. Uh, It is called the Leap Watch Factory. It's in Besançon in the uh, the east of France. And they went on strike in 1973. Uh, And not only did they go on strike, but they kept kept the factory going and they kept selling watches. And this this was a model for what was called autogestion, self-management. This was going to be a new form of... Of, of running factories by the workers themselves. It didn't last that long, but it was a tremendous inspiration. On the right, we have something called the Laozac. The Lausac was a movement on a plateau in, in the, uh, the Massif Central, in the center of France. It was a plateau where there were a lot of sheep farmers. The French government wanted to expand a military base over it, and there was a resistance movement of farmers and of thousands of former 68ers who came to these big demonstrations all the way through the 1970s, nonviolent demonstrations. And when François Mitterrand came to power in 1981, uh, he uh, cancelled plans for expanding the military base. And so this was actually an example of a 68 movement uh, that succeeded. So I'm now going to come on to what I call the eclipse of protest in the late 1970s. I said earlier on that the Third World provided this source of inspiration uh, to to young activists, but there came a time when it was no longer a source of inspiration, Uh, and it was felt that countries liberated from European colonialism or American imperialism were descending into civil war, uh, dictatorship, massacre, even genocide. So here we have uh, the Boat people, uh, fleeing uh, from, uh, com- from from communist va- Vietnam after 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 the communist victory in 1975, here we have uh, evidence of the so-called killing fields of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Um, so there was a feeling that you know the Third World wasn't working, and we even get books like this coming out, uh, "The Tears of the White Man," uh, where uh, some people were saying that you know colonialism was a good idea because. Uh, because the newly uh, liberated uh, countries weren't uh, doing things very well. Unfortunately, there are people with similar ideas uh, still around today. Uh, The Islamist revolution uh, in in Iran in 1979 gave a completely different uh, aspect to third-world anti-imperialism, and this uh, this generated Islamophobia. This did not uh, provoke uh, uh, sympathy in the West or imitation in the West apart from later, uh, which is a completely different story. So the Third World ceases to become a source of inspiration. And then the Cold War, we're getting to, a, we're getting to the end of the Cold War, and there's a rise of anti-communism. There's dissidents in the Eastern Bloc, and a new discourse of human rights starts to uh, evolve. And former six, many former 68ers come to criticise communism, um, and they argue that it led to concentration camps that were no better uh, than Germany's uh, uh, concentration camps. And the key moment here is the publica- publication of Sol- Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago in 1973. So in, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia, you get this Charter 77 movement, it's called, and the trial of this man here, uh, Václav Havel. And this movement in the Eastern Europe wins over many former 68ers from Marxism. You remember I told, said earlier that people like Rudy Dutschke looked down their noses at, at Democrats uh, in, the, in, in the East, and now they're coming along uh, to one to, uh, well not um, Duczka himself, who was, uh, who's, um, who's, uh, who's been shot and, and was injured. But here, here, here is a quote from a, a, former, a former Trotskyist who, who discovers this movement, and he talks about, I'm not going to read this out, he, he talks about how he goes to uh, Czechoslovakia and then he goes to Poland, and he's inspired uh, by these people's uh, campaigns for human rights and, and even their campaigns for freedom of religion. And there's a way in which this movement, this human rights movement, this anti-communist movement in the East leads to the Velvet Revolutions of 1989, uh, which end communism. Uh, and some uh, people uh, see, the, the, see that there's a link between 1968 Eastern European dissidents and these revolutions of 1989. And the other thing that happens, I think, <clears throat> is that people say that these cultural revolutions kind of ran out of steam uh, in the 1980s. The communes broke up, people went back to their nuclear families, feminism became mainstream, gay rights encountered a backlash with the AIDS epidemic. And arguably in the 1980s, collectivism was replaced by individualism, anti-consumerism was replaced by consumerism, and protest by non-conformity. In 1988, the French television staged what it called the trial of May 1968, and former 1968ers were, were, were paraded in the TV studios and more or less had to repent for what was called the excesses of 1968. They were told that 1968 had had degraded into hedonism and violence and they should apologize. And the dominant narrative around around 1988 came to be that 1968 wasn't really political, but it was cultural and had brought in individualism and and consumerism. So just bear with me for about five more minutes. So I'm now gonna talk about the return of protest after the millennium. And you remember we are dealing with three themes all the time, the third world, revolution, war, and cultural revolution, and here they come back again. You could argue that there was a new wave of revolt in the third world, which is now called the global south, against what you might also call the global financial imperialism of the IMF, the World Bank, and the G7 or the G8. And these institutions uh, particularly from the 1980s, are using third world debt to impose draconian neoliberal measures on developing countries and they, are op- and they are forcing open the doors of those countries to multinational corporations. From time to time you see revolts by peasants and marginal populations in the global south. Uh, some of these were being cleared off the land by businesses and governments who were selling food and raw materials to the north in order to pay these debts. Here we have... Uh, an extraordinary character, uh, a guy called, who was known as Subcomandante Marcos. He was a Jesuit-educated former lecturer who arrived in the southern Mexican region of Chiapas, where the local Mayan population were being driven off the land by big producers. And he organized them into a Zapatista Liberation Army that went into action in 1994, occupying uh, a number of towns. There was on a slightly wider Uh, framework, or more Western framework, there was a a more Western dimension of this in in, in the anti-globalization movement, or the global justice movement, which began to disrupt uh, meetings of the WTO, or the IMF, or the G8. Uh, Here in the middle we find what's called the Battle of Seattle uh, in 1999. And this uh, example here is the World Social Forum, which uh, in 2001 brought together uh, 10,000 people to its first meeting in Porto Alegre in Brazil. And this was timed to challenge uh, the annual closed meeting of the global political and corporate elite at Davos in Switzerland. And this was open to activists from all social movements, trade unions, political parties, and NGOs, which shared its values. And its, its values, it, it proclaimed as its values quote, uh, concrete actions at levels from the global, from the local to the global, in order to build another world. Build another world was there was their uh, mantra. Now, so, so that anti-globalization movement was one dimension, but there's also anti, anti-war, anti-imperialist, and anti, anti-capitalist movements. Here we have, here we have the world... Uh, there were worldwide demonstrations, as you know, uh, you probably went on them, uh, on the 15th of February 2003 against the imperialist war being driven through by Bush and Blair. But this war happened, and then there was a pushback from Islamist groups, both, Iraq, both in Iraq and uh, in Europe. So here we have uh, uh, an Islamist attack, the Islamist, Islamist attack, which is known as 7-7, uh, in 2005 in London. And here we have uh, the riots in the in, in the, Bollier, the suburbs of, uh, of, of Paris, which were generated by alienated... Uh, immigrant populations, usually of Muslim origin. So that, that, that's a kind of false uh, piece for some of these uh, freedom movements. But at the same time, the protest is relaunched as a new anti-capitalist movement after the crisis of, 19, uh, of 2008 and uh, in response to government austerity programs. This provoked a generational, revo- a generational revolt by young people who were born after about 1980, the the so-called millennials. These were angry and are angry at global capitalism, uh, uh, growing inequalities, lack of access to housing, jobs, et cetera, uh, and angry about ecological uh, crisis. As in 1968, their tactics were to occupy and to liberate spaces, to practice practice, uh, direct democracy. But now they're connected by a new technology, the internet, social media. So we find protests in Greece and in France in 2010, in Spain in 2011. In Britain, students demonstrated and occupied campuses in 2010 against the tripling of student fees in the first significant student movement since 1968, while the so-called UK Uncut movement targeted corporations that were felt not to be paying their taxes. And most obviously in New York, the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, took off In September 2011, as young people protested under the slogan, we are the 99% against the 1% who owned all the money and controlled the political system by what they called legalised bribery. And lastly, and this is completely completely speculative, but I'm proposing that we have a new cultural revolution that's happening under our eyes. And this is around uh, LGBTQ, We've had had feminism and gay rights in the 1970s and now we have the trans revolution. And I think we can see this as a challenge to binary patriarchy, uh, to to a kind of capitalism that is always dividing his his products from her products and indeed uh, it's it's a protest against some forms of uh, colonialism. Uh, People have seen a peak uh, in transgender referrals and transgender interest in the West in 2005 after an interview with American singer Mila Cyrus, who identifies as pansexual. Meanwhile, in India, the Supreme Court recognized uh, the trans- transgender community as what it called a third gender in 2004. But mu- much of the global South, uh, as well as much as the West, is and was, host- was and is host- hostile uh, to the trans movement. But this is, you could argue, this is another uh, frontier that's opening up. And here's a quote, um, uh, from a man whose big book is yet to be published, uh, who says, In colonial times, Cecil Rhodes vowed to paint a, a line in pink the colour of the British dominion on the maps from the Cape to Cairo. Now, a century later, a new pink line seems to be drawn across the, lo- across the gro- globe, a new human rights frontier around sexuality and gender identity that divides and describes the world in an entirely new way. So watch this space. And the last slide <clears throat> comes from Noltea. Uh, 10th of April, 2018. Uh, I should have said earlier on that Nanterre, which was this new university to the west of Paris, was the place where uh, the 1968 movement started in March 1968, and here we have April 2018, uh, they're still demonstrating. Thank you very much. (laughs)
0: Extraordinary overview of before and since 1968. We have time for some questions. And we have a couple of microphones
1: on either side of the room. Professor Gilder, thanks very much for a fascinating tour de force. Uh, I wonder, do you see the sexual revolution as a product of a 68 type thing or as a cause? <coughs> it's, a so, it's a sort of... Uh, it's a product. I mean, I don't think '68 was in itself a sexual revolution. And the point I was trying to make is that there's a lot of talk about free love in uh, 1968, but that free love is often regarded by women as sexist free love. Uh, and as I said, as I said um, earlier on, a lot of women have, uh, found themselves uh, silenced by uh, some of these um, rather macho intellectuals, and they were also. You know, if, if you if you were a sort of group leader, uh, a student leader, you know, you you, you felt yourself entitled to, uh, you know, access to, to the most beautiful students. So I, in a sense, uh, I think the feminist movement comes out of 68. A lot of the women are active in 68, but they also th- say, well, you know, that, is, that, that kind of 68 is, it, you know, we didn't agree with that, so we're going to go off on a tangent. So you have the feminist movement, and you also have gay rights, and other things which are... You know, you can't, you can't imagine them without 1968, but they are, to some extent, a reaction against it.
0: Do you have any views on the, the Samuel Huntington view, uh, take on the clash of civilizations, and whether
1: uh, fault lines will be around religion in the, in the coming years? I mean, the Huntington view comes out in the, uh, in the 1990s, the clash of civilizations. Is that what you're referring to? Um, I mean, I think what I I was saying about Islam, where where, um, this clash of civilization and and Islam, Islam, uh, the the challenge of Islamism comes in, I think I I would argue that it interrupts this kind of protest movement because you have a new generation of activists, of freedom fighters who are Islamists and who are against Western values, and it makes it very difficult for this kind of protest to survive. And so, I mean, it has been shown, for example, that the the, the anti-war movement that you had in 2003 and and some of the anti-globalization movements that you had sort of, you know, 1999 and the early 2000s get closed down or marginalized because after these Islamist attacks, security is so great and hostility to any form of terrorism is so enormous that it makes it very difficult for, uh, for these kinds of protest movements to assert themselves. So my argument is that it takes, it takes that, it, it, that, kind of, that kind of clash of cultures has to sort of die away a bit and be replaced by uh, the challenge of the, the economic crisis after 2008 for these movements to, to resurface. Thanks very much indeed. Um, I, I was just wondering uh, whether you could talk a little bit about what happened in France after 68 and in particular uh, the extent to which uh, what happened in France in 68 was in large measure a protest against de Gaulle and against authoritarianism and and the sort of uh, uh, generation gap that um, de Gaulle represented. Um, So could you just talk about
0: those sorts of things, what happened in France after (coughs) 68?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I mean, as you as uh, as as you may know, um, when things get very very difficult in France at the end of '68, uh, De Gaulle is a runner. He leaves the country <coughs> and he finishes up in uh, I think it's Baden in West uh, somewhere in West Germany, where one of his generals from the Algerian War is is stationed and. Uh, you know, people are wondering whether he's going to bring in the army to um, to, crush the, to crush the movement. Uh, he comes back to, he flies back, um, he doesn't bring in the army, he makes a broadcast and says that there's now going to be an election, a general election. And when he calls a general election, uh, he, in a sense, changes the agenda and all the political parties start to run around to fight the election. He also at the same time bans all these movements, the Trotskyist movement, the Maoist movement, all these all these radical movements are, are banned. Um, <clears throat> De Gaulle himself has always been a bit of a problem for the 68's because although uh, you know, one of the famous um, you know, slogans was De Gaulle, De Gaulle au Musée. You know, De Gaulle should be in a museum and 10 years that's enough, you know, so there was an anti-Goalist movement. But the thing about de Gaulle was that he was always the man of the resistance. And because the, 19, the 68ers kind of laid claim to being the heirs of the French resistance, de Gaulle was a bit of a problem with them. I mean, curiously, they were more hostile to his wife, Yvonne, uh, because she was a terrible prude and she disapproved of people having fun. Uh, and so they, they had a huge dislike for her. But in a sense, the big change there was a big change after de Gaulle went and was replaced by Pompidou in 1969 the 68ers were very very hostile to pompidou pompidou had no past in the resistance he he actually went the record saying he was fed up with all this resistance rubbish and he starts to put some of these more radical resistors uh, particularly from a movement called the proletarian left in prison so my the, this guy uh, jean-pierre ladonté who I quoted uh, finishes up in prison and so it's 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 from about 1970 the, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of um, uh, appropriation of the resistance uh, heritage in a much clearer way by by former 68ers who were part of these who are part of these you know more revolutionary movements that come out of 68.
0: Um, I was
1: wondering if you could please explain what you meant when you said that uh, trans, in some ways transgenderism was a protest a- against capitalism. Well, it was slightly flippant, but I mean, if you, if you, if you, I mean, the argument that I, the, the example that I gave is that, is, is that a lot of uh, commercial products, are, you know, are, are specifically for men or specifically for women, you know, and you get his, his this and her that. So it was in a slightly flippant way, I was saying the, cha- the transgender, transgender movement kind of challenges that kind of, that sort of binary uh, and kind of very traditionally sexual way that, that it, you know, um, sexual tropes that are played on by, by advertising. So it was slightly, it was slightly, it was slightly flippant. But I mean, I think that little, that last slide on the transgender revolution, as I said, is purely speculative. Um, And, you know, the books and articles are beginning to be published on it, and it's quite a recent development in this sort of, but, but I think all I'm saying is it's worth watching. If, if, you know, if, if the feminist and gay rights movements, you know, were, were powerful movements to come out of 1968 in the 1970s, then what is the equivalent now? Of course, we still have uh, feminism, we still have gay rights, but we also have the transgender movement. And what I'm saying is, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to watch whether you know that kind of movement links up with anti-globalisation movements, uh, and which link up with you know anti-colonial movements, for example, to produce some sort of uh, movement with, a su- with sufficient uh, um, convergence and critical mass to, to do anything. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a historian. Historians don't predict the future. Uh, but they can, uh, they do see trends. And all I was doing in the last part of my talk was to say, you know, if a 1968 were to happen, and you could say, you know, as far as they're concerned, that is it happening again. But if it was to happen uh, in any serious way, what would it look like? And what the historian can do is to say that there are these movements across time. They are convergences, divergences, developments, and, you know, uh, you know, I, you know if, if something was going to, if some deep movement is going to challenge, you know, Brexit, Trump, and all the other horrors of our time, what would it look like? Well, I've sketched out something that, you know, what it might look like. But, you know, who knows? Because we can't read the future. On the other hand, we can, you know, as somebody said, our, as Mark said, the purpose is, is not just to understand the world; it is to change it.
0: To finish <laughs> on, <off>, but uh, <laughs> we can conclude there. Um, Professor Galdo will be in the lobby signing some of his books for those of you who would like to purchase them. Please join me in thanking him once more. Thank you.